Since I began working in the digital space for hospitals and health systems well over a decade ago, inevitably every conversation I had at some point or another would lead back to patient data privacy and HIPAA. And over the last few years, with the mounting interest of healthcare partnering with outside technology companies such as Facebook, Google, Amazon, it has brought a heightened sensitivity to how the healthcare industry should defend and preserve protected health information, or PHI. However, the onset of the coronavirus pandemic has cast an entirely different light on the role of health data in a public health crisis. From contact tracing efforts that track travel and location data to help manage the spread of virus in our communities, to the Department of Health and Human Services indicating that they're actually backing off enforcement of certain privacy rules to make it easier for hospitals and their vendors to share patient medical records with public health officials. You have to ask, in America, is the privacy of PHI evolving? And will this be a change for the better? Welcome to The New Normal, conversations about the future of healthcare from Touchpoint Media. Through interviews with leading industry experts, this program explores how the current public health crisis is forcing our industry to transform and change. In this episode, I speak with Kurt Waltenbaum, founder and CEO of Carrot Health. Kurt has built his career focused on using data to predict and influence consumer behavior. Through this, he has built successful analytic solutions, products, and even companies that serve many industries, including healthcare, retail, education, and credentialing. The company he founded and is currently the CEO of, Carrot Health, puts the consumer at the center of the U.S. healthcare system by working with health systems and other healthcare organizations to understand social and behavioral data of their communities and customers and help them predict consumer health behaviors and outcomes. Listen in as we discuss what the new role of health data could be in a post-COVID-19 world. My background has been varied, a variety of industries, but the common thread that runs through it is using data about consumers to predict their current behavior and project uh, future behavior and using that information to kind of nudge uh, behavior change in a variety of directions. I've applied that in a number of different worlds, and over the last 15 years, that's been focused primarily on healthcare, better understanding how consumers make decisions about their health and about their behavior related to health, really with the goal of understanding how we, we live our lives outside of the four walls of the hospital and how all of the information about us, kind of where we live, the vehicles we drive, the pets we own, where we shopped and and the communities in which we lived, how that shaped our own behavior around our own health and what barriers that might put in front of people in disparate ways that prevent people from from leading their healthiest lives. And so Carrot's real mission is to identify those barriers that people are facing to health and help our communities remove those barriers so that uh, that, uh, people can live their longest, uh, healthiest life possible. And all of that's based on consumer behavior data uh, and the correlations of that behavior data with our health outcomes. And just a a real simple example, as we look at the communities around us, we find people who live closer to fast food restaurants than they do to a a grocery store which sells fresh food. Just that one data element gives a 22% elevated risk of obesity within our populations. And, and that's a real powerful message on how our communities tend to shape our, our health and health outcomes. That's really important to understand the data of individuals that their community themselves are, you know, there's a lot of data points about them. That, and now, since we're in the midst of now a national public health 
pandemic, it's even become more relevant for us to, to understand all these different factors. I think what we're we're seeing, and, and in fact, uh, before we got on this call, you mentioned that the virus is affecting minority populations at a much higher rate than other communities. And we see these disparities in different pockets all across the country. Those disparities are related to the, the barriers that we're facing in our lives, which are commonly called today the social determinants of health, mm-hmm. which involve environmental, economic, social, and, and other behavioral factors. We find, for example, in the Deep South, the incidence of diabetes to be much higher than elsewhere in the country. And in fact, it it correlates almost perfectly with uh, the the per capita consumption of sweet tea, which you know is an interesting interesting correlation when we look at that sort of lifestyle and the ability to ingest uh, sugary beverages with an outcome related to diabetes. Well, the fact that diabetes is one of the risk factors within the COVID-19 uh, disease suggests that those communities are going to be impacted at a much higher rate than uh, than out west, for example. I'm reading a lot of stories about there are other companies that are kind of coming to the table now, like Google and Verizon and others that are actually bringing in this vast amounts of data as a way to kind of help address how we're going to we're going to respond to this public health crisis. There is a lot of data that's available about consumers, particularly in this digital age where we all have a large digital footprint. There is. There is a tremendous wealth of information about each individual uh, that is, is stored in the cloud. The interesting thing is that most of that data is not healthcare related. And so we have to sort of draw inferences between the data uh, around our browsing pattern and our mobile phone usage and how that relates to health. It's imperfect, but it's it, the reason we're doing it is because of the gaps in our knowledge from a health perspective. We don't have a national health ID. We don't have a national database of claims data. We don't have ways in which we can easily assess a health crisis developing across the country. So we look for proxies in other data sets. You're the second person this week that I've talked to that's mentioned this national health ID. It's coming up more and more in conversation today. Are you suggesting that there could be a a database that keeps track of everybody by their individual name or, or health record? Well, think of it analogous to our social security number, which keeps track of us from an employment perspective and our, our earnings. We've prohibited at a federal level the ability to implement that sort of national data set that might track health and health outcomes across the country. And it's sort of done at a patchwork level by private entities, health insurers, health information exchanges, as well as state governmental entities. Clearly, CMS at the Medicare level has a good repository of data on seniors. But beyond that, there's no real centralized data set. If we had that data set and we allowed organizations, public or private, to review that information, we could in real time have detected things like this virus as it was getting started in the same way that a retailer might use an AI routine to look at shopping behavior and detect when a certain color or a certain toy or a certain product was beginning to accelerate in sales and use that as a way to stock up. We could have looked at the outbreak of influenza-like symptoms or upper respiratory symptoms 
and noted that this was something that was different than our normal pattern and began to stock up on supplies, make more, more masks and personal protective equipment, for example. So having that national data set could be really valuable. Without it, we're sort of flying blind in many respects at a, a national and local level. When you describe it that way, it makes a lot of sense. And this is not a new concept. People have been talking about this for, for years. What do you think are some of the inhibitors? Why, aren't, why haven't we moved further? I, I mean, I've heard of these, this patchwork of like HIEs and other areas where people are starting to bring this data together. Why hasn't there been a significant movement of that, of, of pulling this together? Yeah, a lot of that is rooted in, uh, in my understanding anyways, rooted in, in politics because of states' rights and the desire to let each state sort of do its own thing. We've resisted having a, a, a single approach at a federal level. I think there's also a fear that if we start capturing this data cross organization, cross state lines, and stitching together a complete picture of the person, that it opens the door towards, say, a, a single payer or a national health system somewhere down the road, mm-hmm. right? that it might be seen as a, a first step. Whether it is or not, it's very clearly gotten some hardened line, battle lines around should we or should we not do it. The other, uh, probably the third group that's in there would be from a privacy perspective, there's a resistance to having uh, any sort of national ID or national identification from a, a, a privacy perspective. I get that privacy perspective because, again, before the pandemic kind of hit America, even myself, I was feeling like I want to keep my data private. I've been opting out, not sharing data with various different places because, you know, there's a sense of like my personal data of how I track on the internet and my purchasing patterns and all that. I don't feel a level of trust or, or comfort around that because I'm not sure how that data is being used, potentially, you know, used for better marketing, better targeted marketing. But now there's this sort of a new perspective that we're start, that we're developing, at least I am, around, boy, if this data could be collected in a way, that data could be very informative to respond to a public health crisis. Do you see that to be true with, you know, the, the, the various different people that you work with? Chris, I'd break that down into two parts, actually. The first part is that perception of privacy. And, you know, as you mentioned, you're opting out of a variety of things and, and trying not to share information. The reality is, even if you do a pretty decent job of blocking web pages and declining cookies and so forth, the vast majority of the information about you and how you behave in an online and offline world is still out there. And organizations like Facebook and Apple and Google and Amazon and so forth, they know a tremendous amount about you and your behavior, as do the data brokers and aggregators. And so I would argue that there really is not a concept of privacy. That ship has sort of sailed now that we're in the the post-internet times. The internet has broken those barriers. The problem is because that data is not stored in a way that you can see or that uh, other entities can see, it's locked up within private organizations uh, like like the aforementioned tech companies. When you get to health data and health behavior, that information, while it's not publicly available, is locked up by the big private uh, organizations, your, your uh, hospital system, your health insurance company. All of these organizations have pieces of the puzzle and they guard that data very, very carefully because it's valuable. So the consumer is not actually getting the benefit of it. 
I would argue the the second half of of the question uh, to your comment, which is, can we use that information to avert public health crises? Can we use it to help uh, with the health of of individuals and communities? Absolutely. And we could help even more if it was publicly available and shared as a public good as opposed to locked up within these private organizations. The advancements around data privacy, GDPR, and what's happening in California, that really kind of furthered the commercialization of that data or or try to clamp down on the commercialization of that data to turn that data into like, you know, ways that you can better market, et cetera. But now we're, we're talking about public health in a whole new way. And it just makes me wonder, and I know that Carrot Health has been spending a lot of time in that space, working with with organizations on freeing that data to actually to provide some insights. So share with me where you could kind of see this new age of where data applied to public health can maybe be a, a way through, not just to respond to the pandemic, but even to the future. I think you're right that the the future, you know, sort of the, as, as you phrased it, the after times here are are going to be a very uh, very interesting time uh, within our country, because we're seeing so many ways in which our infrastructure, from both a, a federal and a state level, as well as a health insurance and a hospital system level, where it's failed us in this crisis. We're currently the uh, by uh, a number of multiples the highest infected reported cases in the, in the world right now. Many of the reasons that it's failed us are now coming to light. And as you look at the lack of excess capacity in, in the network, for example, the lack of uh, excess capacity in hospital beds, ICU beds, uh, ventilators, that's not serving us very well as a, as a nation. If, if you look at health insurance, and private health insurance, employer-sponsored health insurance, well, how is that affecting the 10% of the workforce that's been laid off uh, here during the crisis already, right? How are they going to, to, to maintain their coverage? And so I think when you look at a number of these factors, they're all going to cause us to reevaluate the system that we've built and create structural and systemic changes that will persist going forward. And I think that's the real interesting thing is, mm-hmm. what are those changes? One real obvious one is the dramatic shift to reliance on telemedicine, where before there was resistance, there were you know pockets of age groups and people typically in a, a higher income bracket who would use telemedicine. Boy, now it's just, it's just shifted everywhere. Mm-hmm. But then you start to think, well, what are the implications of that down down the line? I have a, a neighbor who's a pediatrician, and she shifted her entire practice to telemedicine, except for uh, making hospital rounds on newborns. And doing a well-child visit has been successful over a video chat, which is great. The problem is her customers are already pushing back and saying, wait a minute, why should I pay you $350 for a a five-minute video chat? You didn't use a stethoscope. You didn't examine the child. There there are all these things you didn't do. You can't charge me the same rate that you used to. And so they've cut that $350 bill down to $30 Hmm. for that, that video chat. Think about the implications long-term on the health system. If we start seeing a lot of the routine care that could be delivered at a much cheaper modality, well, consumers might just continue to demand that post-crisis. 
the telemedicine toothpaste is out of the tube in that we're inferring that the, the consumer expectations are now we want these convenient solutions. We want to use these, you know, these new, cheaper, more convenient solutions to access care and engage with care. But then the implications of that on the system that we've built it suddenly becomes now, there's a healthy conflict that's brewing. There will be some point when we're past this pandemic where we're going to want to have all of these various, sometimes even disintermediate ways of engaging with our health through third-party companies, through health systems, whatever, because now this is our new normal. And also we're going to be looking at still having the health systems equitably be reimbursed for this work that sets up for a very healthy conflict if if not an outright crisis that could potentially occur a- am i reading the tea leaves wrong on this one no you're absolutely right because if you 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 take uh primary care docs as a, a as just a, a perfect example much of what they do, you know, I, I would say for many pediatricians, 80 to 90% of what they do can be handled in a low cost modality. And if you're suddenly being able to, to capture only a 10th of the revenue you were able to on a visit, what does that mean for physician salaries? What does that mean for the ability to finance that, uh, that front door into the health system? The other side is we argued for years that we were overbuilt in the the hospital bed world, right? We had too many beds. Uh, They were uh, becoming uh, money-losing entities. It was hard to prop them up. Yet in a crisis, we don't have enough. So what does that mean about the ability of private entities, not-for-profit or or for-profit, to be able to support this infrastructure we need for public safety? Uh, is there an argument to be made that that more of these hospitals should be a public good uh, and not a not a private good to support the capacity that we need in in an emergency? And should that be separated from the rest of the healthcare system? I don't know what the end outcome is based on our sort of unique flavor of government and economics here, but you can better believe there's going to be questioning and there's going to be a demand for change. When you even see it happening to a certain extent, albeit in the midst of the crisis in certain states like California and and New York in particular, the governments, the statewide governments are already starting to pull together the data resources to be able to understand the tracking of patients through various different entities. They're also doing it on the back end from supply chain, et cetera. So again, I think that this national health crisis is going to fundamentally shift the perspective of not only you know how we we manage our care, but how we actually track the individual through the care, various different care uh, instances that they have, and again, that kind of puts the light back onto the data, which is really what we've been talking about, right? The data of individuals through the various different care modalities that they're they're facing is going to be super critical. Hundred percent. The other piece that the crisis is going to, to put a spotlight on is these disparities that we have in being resilient, mm-hmm. right? Whether that's a population that is already food insecure or on the boundaries socioeconomically, or a population that is housing unstable and maybe you know uh, uh, younger people who are couch surfing today, prior to the crisis. All of those issues are going to come back to haunt those communities uh, by an order of magnitude in the next six to nine to 18 months as we try to bounce back from this crisis. And you look at how quickly people went from being relatively employed, even if they were, they were you know, barely able to make ends meet, to being unemployed with no safety net. 
that spotlight, I think, is going to drive a tremendous amount of change that we've been covering up with a, a patchwork uh, of nonprofit organizations and well-funded hospitals that are doing community outreach and you know helping to supplant food shelves. That's just not sufficient, right, for for the communities that are are being disadvantaged here. So my hope is the spotlight on the upstream social determinants of health, these barriers that people are facing in disparate ways across the community, the data, we know where those communities are. We knew where they were prior to the crisis. Now we're, we're going to uh, start seeing how can we use that data and that information to proactively help rebuild the resilience of these communities as, uh, as they try to rebuild and, and go forward. And now leads to the fact that the insights, drawing those insights from that data to, to, to develop future responses to not only this pandemic, but whatever is in the future. And quite frankly, the other things that we have not been addressing, such as the disparities in, in food, like uh, you, know, you mentioned at the beginning of the interview, public health is now really going to be reliant on these deep data sources that will allow us to really um, respond in a whole new way. You work with a lot of organizations on helping them find the insights in that data. Do you see that your work is going to shift as, as we move forward? It will. Um, and I, I think one of the, the hopes that I have is that we take these lessons to heart in terms of how we're funding health risk. And, and what do I mean by that? The you know, just take that example from, from the, the beginning of the conversation where we have a population that, that in an urban area lives closer to fast food restaurants than fresh food grocery stores. And that population is, is less food secure, less healthy, more prone to obesity and, and so forth. If you're a hospital system taking on health risks for that population, how do you fix that, right? You're not financed to go build grocery stores. You're not financed to go teach people how to uh, cook healthily and, or even to go and, and change zoning laws so we move uh, fast food restaurants further out. That's not necessarily the role of the health system. And you hear physicians say all the time, that's not medicine. But if you're, if you're trying to prevent these chronic diseases and this burden from showing up in, in society, that's where you have to go. The challenge is, you know, if you just take something uh, simple like uh, childhood obesity, childhood obesity might take 20 to 30 years to show up as a, a diabetic disease burden, right, in the community. How do you finance risk, which we typically measure on a 12-month cycle, over the, the decades required to be able to, to make an investment in fixing childhood obesity worthwhile? So we're bringing a lot of this to light through this pandemic and demonstrating that these risks we've been talking about for years are actually real and they're actually causing uh, harm in these communities. How do we now take that lesson and go at, uh, from a policy perspective, change how we finance risk and change how we, we intervene? One of my thought experiments is to say, what if we took all of the dollars that we're currently giving to health insurance companies and providers in a county, let's say, and we gave all of those dollars to a county health board, and we said, you get to decide how to spend these dollars to maintain the health of your population, and you own the health of that population for the next 30 years. Those dollars will be spent vastly differently than they're spent today by the payers and providers. And I think that's the sort of debate we need to have at a, a local and a national level to talk about how are we getting uh, the best out of our, our spend with payers and providers.
that is a very provocative thought, but actually one that that has come to my mind as well. And uh, you know, I think that that certainly is different than what the current state is. But as we evolve to whatever the new normal will be, this is certainly something that I think that many people are are going to start to look at in a more serious light because we need to act differently now. And if anything that this pandemic has done is kind of address the fact that there are these inequities that we need to respond to. And the role of the health system, the role of public health, and you know this whole argument of that's not really health, right? These these social determinants of health are not what's what doctors have normally addressed. I think that that's going to shift tremendously in the future. That's exactly where we're headed. You know, we yeah. we need to invest in that that infrastructure to give people the the best shot at maintaining a healthy life before they get sick. Why do we wait until they get sick and then try to patch them up afterwards? Well, Kurt, this has been a great conversation, and I know we could probably talk for much longer. Definitely really enjoyed our conversation today, and I hope you stay safe, and I look forward to further conversations. Likewise. Thank you, Chris. Clearly, the role of public health data will continue to evolve as health systems, public health officials, governments, and even private companies continue to work together. As we've seen with the current pandemic, we have a long way to go in ironing out the coordinated response between the public and private sectors. And other countries across the world are also facing the same challenges, managing the delicate balance between the privacy of personal health information and the need to release this information for the good of public health. As we look forward to a post-COVID-19 world, how will we find that balance? You've been listening to The New Normal, conversations about the future of healthcare from Touchpoint Media. If you enjoyed today's program, take a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you downloaded this show. The music from this program is I Don't Know by Grapes and is available as a royalty-free download on ccmixter.org. To find out more about Touchpoint Media, visit us online at touchpoint.health.